It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We're going to talk about the latest security news and then answer your questions. It's a Q&A episode. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 489, recorded Tuesday, January 6th, 2015. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 204. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And by Citrix Go to Assist. Citrix Go to Assist offers a secure cloud-based solution for IT and customer support professionals to provide live and unattended remote support to their employees and customers working from any computer or mobile device. For a 30-day free trial, visit gotoassist.com. And by IT Pro TV. A good IT pro is always learning. And IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your IT skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku computer or mobile device for a free seven day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your uh, security and privacy online with this guy right here. He was in studio last week. I'm sorry to say he's back in Irvine. Uh, Security Now host, our genial commentator, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you, as always, although from a distance. It was really fun to be in the studio. And in fact, I I try to decorate the show notes with a security-related photo. In this case, I chose a photo that Lisa happened to capture while I was attempting my very the very first ride of my life of the uh, mechanical bull, which you, made you had this set face up. a lot, in fact, all day and night. Did I? <laughs> yeah, I have another one of you, which I will dr- dig up. With, Not with, when with Marilyn, Marilyn was Monroe on my lap. Kissing your forehead, yes. Oh, I thought I was pretty happy with her, with yeah, her doing that. You were happy. So. It was a... Surprised happy. (laughs) Uh, Awesome. Awesome. So for those of our listeners who don't know, um, all of the uh, hours of the podcast are available at uh, twit.tv slash specials. And uh, they're all uh, enumerated there. They, I thought that the, well, there was a lot that was a lot of fun. So, you know, I got a lot of great feedback from it. So, you know, I just got this pop up just now. This is very odd. On uh, iTunes, do you want to allow this computer to access information on Steve's iPhone 6 Plus? Do you have an iPhone 6 Plus? Uh, yeah. Is it called Steve's iPhone 6 Plus? It is. You know, it's very strange because um, obviously your iPhone 6 Plus is not connected to this iMac mm. here. I know what it was. Um, uh, I was charging. And oh. I, ha- I had it plugged into so uh, the red... The red connector, yeah. which uh, uh, Jeff explained, was for your clone iPhone. And so he had me switch it over. And then I got the pop-up, do you want to trust this computer? And, I, of course, I said no because I didn't want to a, a form an affiliation. But that's 
That's what that the was. The computer feels uh, rejected and is continuing mm. to try to affiliate yeah. with you. <laughs> Isn't that strange? I've been in here since then, but uh, this is the first time that's popped up. You didn't leave your phone here, did you? No. Well, no, I'm <laughs> Okay. So, uh, well, anyway, thank you for coming. I, I apologize, as I have been to all the hosts, for the what? V- truly awful dinner that we served you at oh, our Oh, God. I, I, I did. I, I'm glad you said that. Because I wasn't going to say anything, but oh, oh I apologize. I have pictures, I have evidence that no one ate anything, and probably wisely so. Uh, it was um, a wonderful, convivial meal, uh, and yes, I just apologize. Because we, we could have chosen a nicer restaurant. We thought we'd choose something ob- with a little local obviously. color. I didn't know the yeah. color would be brown. Yeah, um, dipped. Dipped. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, so I do. I apologize. Nah, uh, it was it was we'll nice it was it was a social gathering, That's what it and was. that was that was really the point. And I mean, who really cared? I didn't care. We didn't go there to yeah. To, but I just know, I figured a, uh, yeah. I figured probably you and you and everybody else were thinking. Good lord, has has Twit gone bust? What but are now we that doing that's here? out, now that you have that out of your system, we're all glad. So. <laughs> It was so much so, fun. I have some great pictures, we, which I'll be showing. Well, oh my God, it was a great time. Yeah, absolutely yeah, a great yeah, time. Yeah. Um, let me. I'll show. I'll show. I'll show. Uh, this is my favorite picture. I don't know if you've seen this. This is of uh, of you at the dinner, looking over your shoulder. Oh, I didn't a, see that. Just That's a neat. great smile. And there's Sarah Lane behind you. It was odd yeah. because uh, how how many times there's Reacher Lisa doing what she does so well, going for the money. Uh, how many <laughs> times have we gotten? There's uh, Denise Howell, all the hosts together, and it's so odd to see all of you not on Skype but in the same room. Well, and you know, one thing that we did that I think we should do more of, um, and that was the one segment where where I and three others, I think myself, Renee, um, and I can't remember, and maybe Jeff. Anyway, I think it was Jeff. Anyway, it was it was you know the host roundtable. And I got oh, so much that was positive great. feedback. We'll do that again. In fact, we should have done more of that because we had yes. you all in studio. And yes. I bowed out. I actually was sitting and listening. It was so good. Uh, Randall Schwartz, who is our Floss Weekly That's host. Right. Renee Ritchie yep. from Mac Break Weekly. Paul Thorat from when It was Paul, right? Paul Thorat? It no. was either Paul. I think it was Jeff. It was right. Jeff, Jeff Jarvis, Jarvis from This Week in Google and Steve Gibson from Security Now. All talking about kind of a wide range of things. It was kind of like Just a anything. Twitch show. Yeah, it's just great. anything. Yeah, but it it went really fast, and we we jumped around, and just it was just you know it's not so, it's not the level of interaction you can normally get through Skype connections, right? And it was a topical. It was just about whatever we wanted to talk about, and I got I mean it, of all the things that happened, that was the thing that people said, "Wow, you know, we should have had more of that." So I agree, I agree, I agree. That was wonderful. So, yeah, you know tuning it as we go well, so i'll find this out week, what hour that is somebody's asking which which uh which uh, episode that is because you know we put it all up on the uh website yep. on twit.tv yep. slash special so i'll find out for you go ahead so uh we have a q a this week we haven't we we skipped two weeks uh actually i guess three um because of you know end of year stuff and i think i really liked and i also got some great feedback about the idea of the last security now of the year being a previous year retrospective. I think that'll be something we also add to our format because a lot of people liked cramming all of the craziness 
of 2014 into a summary. It's like, okay, whew, we made it. Here's what happened. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, because it's just sort of a nice, a nice opportunity to, a re- to do a review. So uh, th- that, that we will do. Um, uh, Q&A 204. And not a ton of stuff has happened. We're going to talk about the HSTS super cookie that has people kind of needlessly worried. But it's an interesting, from a, from a security theory and technology standpoint, an, an interesting hack. Uh, then, of course, GoGo's in-flight cert spoofing has generated a bunch of buzz. I will talk about Thunderstrike that you talked about in the previous hour on, on MacBreak. Uh, a quick note about CryptoLocker's successor. And then, of course, we've got 10 questions and comments and thoughts from our listeners. So, uh, you know, another great uh, couple hours here. Marvy. Chat room is saying that it was hour four. I can't believe it was hour four. That no, it had on. to be later than that. Yeah, I think it must have been. No, I don't think all those people were here, but maybe. I don't know. It would, for me, it's all a blur, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and Leo, I've got to say, I'm just, I'm impressed. It took me 48 hours to recover. I came home it was and I slept four. for 15 hours. Uh, yeah, me too. I went to sleep at seven thirty. I went to sleep at seven thirty and got up at ten thirty the next day. I just, you know, just knocked me out. But uh, so it but was. Boy, it was you a, really. Oh, I did the whole thing. Obviously, it was uh, Twit Live Special Number Two Twelve. Yeah. and there you have it. And uh, believe it or not, so it was like four and five in the morning. Well, I know I that know, Ren- seven in the morning. Uh, R- Renee and Randall both uh, were planning to be part of the uh, breakfast with Steve. And we moved that forward, right. and so I never so did I, have it, breakfast. By the way, no, but you and I had a neat. I was a neat counting on chat. breakfast. <laughs> they told me there'd be breakfast, but this was good, and I highly recommend it. We should probably just put this out uh, as a, as a little bit by itself because it was so good. But it's about. Let me look here. It's about halfway, little little less than halfway through uh, Twit Live Special Number Two Twelve. Uh, so it looks like it starts about uh, after the trust. The trust exercise with Josh Windish, about fifteen minutes in. There you go. Um, well, that was such such fun, and we opened so many bottles of champagne. And by the way, I've been hearing you talk about understanding the need for body hair, and of course, that's why I wear the cap. I was just reminded because that there I have the, my, my my little my little French cap on as I do, and it's because I keep my hair so short that as you have found, now. it really is cold. It is not hair is not an evolutionary mistake or a leftover or vestigial. It really protects your head, and we know that you lose a lot of heat through your head. Also, I've been wearing there's a cap to bed. A yeah. nightcap. Oh, I think our brain uses what is this? Twenty percent of our so body's total energy there, budget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is just a perfect radiator now. So. Yeah. <laughs> ah, it'll grow back in no time. Uh, anyway, it was fun. We raised $75,000 at uh, Final Count for UNICEF. Um, a little more than 10 of that through the auction and about $61,000 through the nice. um, to just donations. cash donations. And yeah. you'll feel good about this, that 91% of the money UNICEF receives goes right to the kids. It is one of the most efficient charities out there. So I feel very, very good uh, about what we did. It was worth getting a tattoo and a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I tweeted, I, I, I woke up without any hair and a, a sore butt. I, what happened last night? Such a good sport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, when that happens in Vegas, then you have a problem. I was but, looking for you know, a tiger. There were no tigers. Petaluma. 
No, Had a little bit. Okay. No crazed monkeys. Uh, do you want to take a break now? We have three ads. Should we do one now? Audible.com, our great sponsor. We're big fans, as you know. I am. Actually, Steve, we have yet to convince. Haven't converted me. Well, I just don't have a, a, a mode in my life where I like I'm driving or flying. Well, or, Steve has a unique you know, ability that I lack to read while running on a treadmill. Yep. I'm bouncing too much. I don't know how you do it. That's where I love Audible. Anytime I'm working out, working out is so boring. I know it's good for you, but Audible.com actually makes it so fun. You sometimes will spend a little extra time on the treadmill or drive around the block or just kind of sit in the driveway listening to the end of that chapter. We're big Peter F. Hamilton fans. Audible.com has a ton of great sci-fi from Peter F. Hamilton. Um, I'm doing the Greg Mandel trilogy right now, which is some of Oh, his... I'm so glad. Yeah, Those are it. so fun. Some yes. of his earlier stuff. He has a new one, though, which I've also bought and downloaded. Just came out in October. This is a new... It's going to be another series because it says book one, The Abyss Beyond Dreams, Chronicle of the Fallers. The year is 3326. Nigel Sheldon, once again, he's back. Uh... He receives a visit from the Rael, self-appointed Guardians of the Void. Good, And they convince him to participate in a desperate scheme to infiltrate the Void. The Void, of course, is uh, part of the subject of a previous trilogy. The Dreaming Void trilogy. And that's really good. Yeah, that's the one with Al Capone, right? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's the Reality Dysfunction trilogy. And I agree. That That went a little, that pushed me a little too far. That was like, okay, that's a little hokey. Well, I've downloaded this. He's got John Lee narrating. Let me play a little bit of it. John is one of the best narrators. That's, by the way, one of the Why things about Audible. Why have you me out like this? Captain wants you out and up. And we don't have much time. Sorry. Imagine, like... Laura's eyes managed to focus on Andy's face, seeing the familiar bulbous nose, dark bags <laughs> under pale brown eyes. It's like you're in a Sunday afternoon, a Saturday afternoon movies, watching a serial. It is so great. Uh, but not just science fiction. Audible has so many other kinds of books. I try to alternate fiction with nonfiction. That way I feel like I'm learning something as well as entertaining myself. Uh, in fact, if I have any regret, it's that I don't spend more time listening to Audible books. I listen in the car. I listen at home, at washing the dishes, walking the dog, working out. If, you, if you've seen the new Clint Eastwood movie or you're about to, American Sniper, here's the original book. Uh, narrated um, uh, by John Pruden, Chris Kyle's story of American Sniper, the autobiography of the most lethal sniper in U.S. military history. So that you see, there's so much here. In fact, we're gonna we've set it up to get you a book a month. You'll be signing up for the Gold Plan if you go to audiblepodcast.com/slash/security now. The first month is free, so your first book is free. You'll also get the Daily Digest of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal as part of your subscription. Um, oh, Unbroken. The uh, book for Unbroken is here. Laura Hillebrand. The, her book on Seabiscuit is one of my favorite all-time Audible listens. And I have to listen to this new one. Edward Herman, who just passed away, I'm sad to say, uh, narrates this one. He, You'll recognize his voice. Zamperini looked toward his crewmates. They were too weak to go back in the water. As they lay down on the floor of the raft, hands over their heads, Zamperini splashed overboard alone. Somewhere beneath him, the sharks were done waiting. 
Oh baby, oh baby. <laughs> so I don't know if you're gonna how it's gonna you're gonna choose one, but you have to choose one at least for your first month at audiblepodcast.com/slash/security. Now it's free. Cancel anytime in the first thirty days. You'll pay nothing. The books are always yours to keep, though. That's nice. Uh, I have my whole library from the last fifteen years of Audible subscription, over five hundred books, and it's great. Audiblepodcast.com Slash security now. Choose from 150,000 of the best books in the world. Here's one you might like. You know, they have the great courses on here now. Uh, ah. This is a uh, college course. Professor Roberta Anding. Nutrition Made Clear. 18 hours. I listened to and I loved how to listen to and understand great music. Professor Robert Greenberg's fantastic. This is a series of lectures. I think there's like 20. No, I'm sorry. 48 lectures. And uh, it, you will you will understand music, classical music, better than you ever have before. These these uh, these great courses are phenomenal. Thinking like an economist, classic novels, meeting the challenge of great. Go back to college, the foundations of Western civilization, practicing mindfulness, an introduction to meditation. This it, the real problem with Audible. There's too much great stuff. <laughs> it really is. Pick one and not enjoy. enough time. Not enough time in the world to listen to all the great books in the world at AudiblePodcast.com. Slash security now. So um, before I forget, I've I've also been listening to you talk about um, the imitation game, which and I haven't. I just got the DVD, so I'm talking through my hat, as they say. Wait, wait. Did you get the the imi- the the imitation game or oh, the invitation? I, no, no. <laughs> Um, I should explain, as a member of the Screen Actors Guild, I get screeners for nominated movies. That's one of them. So I got the screener. What? I know. It's Wow. It's, it's not a, life's not fair. Wow. But I haven't seen it yet, and I want to see it. It's the story of Alan Turing. I wish, of course, I, 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 wish I knew you, Leo. <laughs> you know what? They're so paranoid okay. about piracy that you have to click a, a button before you can watch the movie on the DVD that says... You will not lend or give this to anyone else, and you will shred the disc after you're done watching it. Wow. Okay. So, the point I wanted to make was I because I've I've heard you talking about the the I'm way nervous. Hollywood portrays math, math, mathematicians, yes. and and the way I would characterize um, the portrayal of Alan Turing is as a prima donna. I think that's that's the perfect word. Is that and you can and I'm not giving anything away because you can see it in the in in the trailer yeah, that they obvious. keep running. Yeah, where he says he says, well, it's the you know the code is supposed to be unbreakable. Let me take a crack at it and we'll find out. You know, as if he's going to be the ultimate authority for crackability of this unbreakable German cipher. So, um, anyway, I really liked it. Although, and I have to say that his prima donna ness. It would be nice to know who the real Alan Turing was because, of course, now we have this particular view of him. But it was crucial for the plot that that be his character. So it could well have been accentuated, you know, um, exaggerated. You know, some of my critique, I haven't seen it, so I will watch it and I'll talk back to you next week. First of all, all four People, the general populace, understanding what who Turing was, his genius. He's the father of modern computing in many ways and was persecuted horrifically by the British government in a shameful fashion. And I'm all for anything that tells that story. I just I, – I think that just as geeks are often misrepresented in mainstream fiction as being geeky, 
Yeah. Mathematicians are often, I'm thinking of a beautiful mind and uh, the uh, social network. The numbers appear through the air. And, and I've read some reviews that say this is perhaps not doing him a great service. Um, his other achievements aren't mentioned. Um, maybe it's not as, you know, this is a thriller. And so they have to make it, it a thriller. It, it did um, induce me to figure out exactly how the Enigma machine works. Yeah, and that's I thought fascinating, I, isn't it? And I thought I would give our oh, listeners oh, a, oh. A, um, an explanation of it next week. Would so, you do a show on the Enigma machine? We could. I mean, it's, it turns out oh, it's uh, that would it's be awesome. really, it, it fits into the discussions we've had before. Well, it's crypto. And it, it, well, it's, Mechanical yeah, I don't want to give, I don't want to give it away, but I completely understand it. And it's not so complex that we could not explain it in an audio podcast. So it's, wow. it's a great, it would be a great topic. I would very much like to do that. I've Let's seen it. an Enigma it. machine. In the, a museum somewhere, and it was quite. I'll amazing. explain it next week. Yeah, uh, that'll, that'll be our topic Yay. for next week's podcast. Great. So, um, the we had a chaos computer convention uh, that just occurred, and uh, oh no, that's that's the wrong topic. Well, okay, I'll, I'll talk about that first. Um, and um, and you did talk about this during MacBreak Weekly, the so-called Thunderstrike exploit. <sighs> And yes, as as you also noted, we've we've commented and we did over the the holidays for the holiday podcast that you really have to have a good name for an exploit in order for it to get hooked or or you know to, for it to really get picked up. And of course, the famous one was Heartbleed, where it came fully with a website and its own logo when when the Heartbleed vulnerability hit us last year, Thunderstrike has at least a good name. And we already anticipated the problem on the podcast on this podcast because I did mention some time ago that Thunderstrike offered the same, you could almost argue, too much power that the Firewire interface does or did, since Firewire is sort of fading. And that is it is a a very high performance direct connection to the system bus um and it allows the peripheral to be a master on the bus not just a slave and if the peripheral can be a master it's able to generate both the addresses and the data and that means it's like another processor. It's like a. It's like a something as powerful as the processor, outside the, outside the case, which you're connecting through a a serialized interface. So, I mean, and, and even Wikipedia on they have a, a a page called DMA Attack, and because this is a direct memory access DMA. Um, vulnerability that's built into the specification. And in, on the Wikipedia page, they say examples of connections that may allow DMA in some exploitable form include Firewire, Express Card, Thunderbolt, PCI, and PCI Express. And that's absolutely right. Those are all bus level interfaces. Now, we've seen it is a Firewire the, attack, right? I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, there was a there was a famous you know credential you know key extraction through FireWire where somebody plugs the, a little box into your Mac when you're not looking and is able to rummage around in RAM. I mean, you have they have complete access to memory. Well, it turns out that in the case of Thunderstrike, there is similarly bus level access to the firmware. The firmware of the Mac is just a region of memory. And what this Thunderstrike does is leverage its access to the firmware in order, and, 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 well, I mean, like to the entire hardware of the machine to rewrite the firmware and then change the the public key, which is in the Mac, to which is used to verify any additional firmware updates so that it can't be removed. So it's, it is, it, the good news is it is hardware level physical access required. The bad news is um, if you get infected with this, you can't get rid of it. Now, Apple has already released some um, updates for the a current one of the minis and something else, and I'm and they will absolutely you know they're responding to this as quickly as they can, and there are things they can do to mitigate this because there are controls that are apparently not in place in at the hardware level where you can restrict the re, the regions and ranges of memory access through um, uh, uh, through Thunderbolt, and and so. Apple's going to get better about doing that. So I'm sure we'll see some updates to these systems, and they're already pushing them out for a few platforms, and I'm sure they'll, they'll give us coverage because, you know, this is not good. Yeah, but you do have, to all, have physical but, access to the system to do it, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. You've got to plug something in to the thun- physically into the Thunderbolt connector. Well, and really what you're doing like is you're, you're US- plugging it. Like bad USB, you could actually have a corrupt device, right? Would that be possible? Sure, sure. So you could have a corrupt Thunderbolt drive that would then right. affect the computer. Yeah, I saw some notions of like a, a, a crossover with NSA saying that, you know, this is the sort of thing that they that some of the sl- the Snowden slides were were implying that they were able to do. And so we may be foreclosing another one of their tricks by by locking this down and and, uh, right. and being more secure with what Thunderbolt is able to access. I'm sure there'll be more. Yeah. Okay, so uh, news also broke of an HSTS super cookie. Now, okay, HSTS is the HTTP Strict Transport Security, so HSTS. And that's the feature which allows a website, if you have a, if you first have a secure connection to it, it allows it to send you a reply header in response to your browser's query that specifically says, I want you, Mr. Browser, to henceforth for, and actually in this response header is a max age, which starts a timer that says for the following number of seconds, only ever access this site over secure connections. And it, what it does is it specifically, it's, you know, having this HSTS, the strict transport security header in the reply, uh, um, 
specifically allows the browser to autonomously upgrade any non-HTTPS, that is to say, any HTTP connections to SSL TLS connections until that max age expires. And there's an option on there, include subdomains, where, so, so for example, GRC has long been an, an, an uh, HSTS, a strict transport security, and GRC's max age is the max allowable. It's something like uh, 31,536,000 seconds, which is like, you know, forever. Uh, and, that, and so browsers all over the planet who have ever visited GRC, all have received, or everyone who visits is receiving that reply. And I'm saying, don't ever even try to access over HTTP. Now, the reason, the reason we do this is that, remember, there was an attack which was being exploited where if a bad guy could intercept your first HTTP access, they could strip out the HTTPSs from the response and prevent your browser from upgrading its security to SSL and TLS, to secured. Um, and so it's that the problem was that first access created a sort of essentially a persistent vulnerability because you, you know most users just put in the domain name and the browser defaults to http if you just give it that because that's been the standard in the past and so all initial connections even if the site wanted to be secure the initial contact would be non-secure that creates an exploitable window so what the whole uh, strict transport security effort has done is once the browser gets you to secure it's it tells the browser remember in its own sort of a separate hsts cache remember for this length of time you have the you have permission to never connect to this domain non-securely if any, if, you, if any URL comes along that matches that domain, you, the browser, upgrade it. And so what that does is after a first contact that where the browser receives that cookie um, or that it's not really a cookie, it's a, a, um, a response header. The, it, when the user puts in grc.com, the browser doesn't any longer go to HTTP the first time. It itself sees, ah. Oh, that's in my my HSTS cache forever. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna automatically make my first connection secure, so the bad guy is is cut out of the loop from the beginning. Now, what a clever hacker recognized, and that's what's interesting about this is this is not news. This was in 2012. Uh, th this it first came to someone's attention that there was a way. If you were, if you could run JavaScript on the client, and so NoScript, for example, or any script blocker, forecloses this 
automatically unless you are running, unless you deliberately run scripts on the site. It would be possible to probe the HSTS um, cache in the browser by having the JavaScript make a bunch of queries to subdomains to see whether they were upgraded or not, which is really, it, it is, it, it's a hack, it's a, but it's a clever hack. So the idea was that you would go to a site that really was determined to track you and script running on the page that you received would issue a whole bunch of non-secure queries out to call it like, you know, a.trackme.com, b.trackme.com, c.trackme.com. And your browser would contain a unique combination of HSTS upgrades for a pattern of the subdomains of trackme.com. And the point is that it's it does create a super cookie. It and what's interesting is that because the other privacy enhanced modes are trying to protect their users, you know, the incognito mode or private mode, whereas cookies may not cross that incognito or private mode boundary, HSTS information does. So you think you're being sneaky going into incognito mode, but if you went to a site that was actually doing this, and by the way, no one knows if anyone, this is all just sort of theoretical, um, then script running on a page you receive from such a site could make a blast out a whole bunch of queries and essentially get binary bits, a, a one or a zero for every one of the subdomains that it tested and then build up a composite ID, which would tend to be sticky. Now, again, because this is two years old, uh, Chrome and Firefox and Opera have long since dealt with this. If you erase cookies, they flush the HSTS cache. Now, that's actually not a good thing to do. Um, because you want your HSTS cache to protect you. That's why we have strict transport security. You know, you'll you'll get it back as soon as you visit sites again, but you don't get it back the first time you visit those sites. The, but the problem is, this is a problem that no one has a good answer for. No one has a good solution for. And so, what Chrome and Firefox uh, and Opera have done is they said, okay, well, uh, we'll we'll flush this information when people erase cookies. Um, Safari provides no provision for this. And on, on the iPhone and iPad, and I don't know on the Mac for sure, but at least on the iPhone and the iPad, there is absolutely no way for users to clear the HSTS information through any of the UI. And um, the iCloud sync syncs HSTS information. So if you, you know, 
wiped your device and then resynced it with the iCloud, you would get back this potentially sort of kind of hacker-esque, flaky super cookie. Anyway, that's what that is. Uh, I, I got a lot of twitch, uh, tweets from people saying, oh, my God, you know, HSTS is, can, can be used against us. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, and in fact, there's there's a test site, radicalresearch.co.uk, that has an example. And when I went there, it came up blank because I've got no script. And I saw I saw that it wasn't working. And so then I permitted no script to uh, run. And then it gave me a token, you know, sort of a crypto looking thing, about eight characters worth or so. And then they said, OK, now, you know, if you wander around, this thing's going to follow you wherever you go. It's like, uh, OK, yeah, with scripting enabled and with this kind of flaky uh, HSTS hack, um, so that's what that's all about. Uh, I don't know that it's anything really to worry about. Um, browsers may start looking, you know, the browsers may take additional action. It'll be interesting to see uh, how this evolves if it gets, if it, you know, rises to the level of additional concern within the, the browser developer uh, security community. And then the other interesting uh, bit of news uh, is that a company called GoGo which is doing uh, in-flight internet access, was caught by, interestingly enough, by a Google employee minting a, a Google cert that they sign. So this person was using Chrome that won't put up with any nonsense with Google certificates because Google is really, you know, protecting themselves they've got certificate pinning going on in chrome and if there's anything in any way screwy about any google cert uh chrome will alert you so she got alerted when she was doing some in-flight internet use and tweeted that this gogo company was essentially doing what we've talked about many times that is trying to perform a man in the middle interception, I won't characterize it as an attack because we don't know that it is, but an interception of her secure connection to YouTube. And what they've said is that they're trying to block access to YouTube. But that doesn't really hold up to technical scrutiny because all of your traffic is going through their proxy. So all they have to do is block access to YouTube. I mean, like IP level access, or they're also providing all the DNS so they could redirect, you know, YouTube.com to an interception page that says, we're sorry, you cannot stream video through your go-go session while you're flying through the friendly skies. But they don't do that. Instead, they attempt to proxy the SSL, the, the secure connection that your that, that you know YouTube is attempting to establish with your browser, and you know a warning comes up saying this is an untrusted certificate. You know, do you want to proceed? And and so the so here's the concern that's been raised, and that is, we absolutely do not want to train any fraction of the world to cl click through those. To say, yeah, yeah, I guess I have to, I guess I'm supposed to say yes to this. The way they are supposed to say yes to license agreements and things. 
So, you know, first of all, it's not clear at all why they're doing this. I think this is just lame. Um, if they want to block YouTube, block it. You know, don't don't try to intercept and decrypt. I mean, they, they like went to some serious um, extremes to get into the YouTube traffic rather than just blocking it. So I I'm skeptical of, of their response at all. And, you know, Ars Technica sort of underreported this. Uh, uh, Dan Gooden normally does a great job. But, you know, the, the Ars Technica story said Gogo has been caught issuing a fake digital certificate for YouTube, a practice that in theory could allow the in-flight broadband provider to view passwords and other sensitive information exchanged between end users and the Google-owned video service. But the fact is it's much worse than that. The certificate is star.google.com and then presumably has some server alternative name fields to allow it to do things also like www.youtube.com. So my point is this certificate that we saw a screenshot of because this Google employee took a screenshot and tweeted it, it's carte blanche across all Google properties. So this is much more than intercepting their, you know, the Google-owned video service. This is really bad. And so the last thing we want is for people to think, oh, I guess I should accept this fraudulent certificate in order to proceed. So anyway, uh, it's troubling to see this happen. And I hope that there's a big backlash because we need to not have this become, you know, standard operating procedure when people are are wanting to use a, a third party's Internet uh, provisioning. That's just is way bad. Is, it, is there um, a nefarious reason they do it this way or is it just kind of goofy? It, it's... It feels, I don't know. I mean, they're they're saying they want to they want to prevent people from doing YouTube well, that, streaming. Yeah, I understand that. So so block the IP. Right. I mean, it's or, easy to you know, block YouTube. I'm sure they block Netflix already. Yeah. So so do that. But what they're doing is they're trying to get people to accept a star.google.com certificate, which they have signed. Right. I mean, and I mean that's just so, bad practice. I understand, but yeah, yeah. And if, so, but is there anything after you get off the plane? Now, are you compromised in some way? Uh, if you were to, if you were to statically accept that, then yes, then you, if you were to accept their, their, um, them as a CA that has signed the Google cert then that's statically that's a static compromise of your machine that you'd be carrying around with you that is bad yeah yeah don't accept yeah, but it. i mean but a lot of people would but, but, and if you weren't on chrome you might not even know right well no er, you still get a warning gonna pop, anything's going to pop up and say this is an untrusted certificate uh, do you want to proceed? And that's my concern is that this is you. Everyone sh should always say no. But if a service is putting them that you want is putting themselves on the other side of this, then we're right. going to start training people to say, right, oh, right, right. well, want that. no. But maybe and they're are they caching YouTube content. So you on the plane or something. 
I mean, there, I, it seems like, I mean, obviously it's a long way around to do this. So I'm trying to figure out why they did it this way. Yeah, I, I cannot, I cannot give you, you know, blocking is easy. I did see the word throttling. So I don't know what that means. Like throttling YouTube. Well, then the video is not going to work very well. Uh, and again, you don't have to get involved in the decrypted connection. You could throttle the encrypted connection just as well. So I mean, I can't. I, I you know, I don't want to ascribe anything nefarious, but I think they must be doing more than they say they're doing. Um, whatever that is, but but the concern is people are going to get trained to to ignore security certificate warnings, and that's, right, that's not, not what we want. Doctor no. Mom says she noticed this behavior months ago, so it's not. It's probably not new. People just found out about it, right? That's interesting. Right. Yeah. So I did want to mention CryptoWall 2.0 only because it's not going away. It's still it's six months old. And I just haven't mentioned it. Um, this is the successor to, or uh, the the family member of the CryptoLocker Society. We of course have have beaten CryptoLocker to death, but and we said at the time that there would be more of this, and CryptoWall is more of this. It is similarly, unfortunately, well designed. The that it is it is you know encrypt your files extortionware where you need to pay them in order to get the key in order to decrypt your files. And uh, there was just an article in the New York Times how my mom got hacked over the holidays, and that just sort of reminded <laughs> me, you know, this isn't gone and it is really bad. And so the the good news is AV is really on top of this. And so as long as you've got current antivirus, you've got as, as you know, the best protection we know of. But uh, if you're going to do a sponsor, insert Leo, about anything about backing up, this would be a great time to put that in because that's the really the <laughs> only thing you can do. I don't, I don't unfortunately. <laughs> if, would you want to take a break now? No, you'd like keep going. Yeah, we'll keep going. We but don't anyway, I'm just saying. Sponsor, that, you know, but yes, but, that but, would be a good thing. But uh, you know, that is, uh, we do know that Carbonite is our is often a sponsor on the show, and so that or whatever you want to do. But ultimately, um, you know, we're seeing people having their like their lives turned upside down. Well, I mean, they have to pay five hundred dollars, so it's not the end of the world, but still. You know, teaches people a lesson and many infection vectors. You know, it's phishing, it's malware that you may already have on your machine. It's click, it, it's clicking a link, it's opening a PDF that is like links to an Excel spreadsheet that's exploiting some a, a vulnerability in Windows. I mean, it sort of, you know, the things that people do in the past to get themselves infected can now be getting themselves infected with something that encrypts all their files rather than just sort of says, you know. Thanks for letting me borrow your computer. I want to attack people with it. So, yikes. Um, okay, miscellany. Um, a couple things. Uh, I rebooted my server. Leo, you and I were talking a week ago Yay. about how, you know, I now if you go to SSL Labs and check out grc.com, I got a better, gra- a gr- better grade than I predicted I would a week ago. I am grc.com is back to an A. So I have a nice green A. I do not have the A plus that I had for a while, 
because I'm deliberately staying with SHA-1 certificates, both to thumb my nose at Google and their effort to force everybody off of them before necessary because there's no nothing anyone knows that's wrong with SHA-1 except Google wants to preempt everyone waiting until Microsoft's 2017 drop-dead day. Um, you but just by, wanted a better grade at SSL Labs. Let's admit it. Well, I, yeah. No, people were saying, <laughs> why are you a C? Are you What's a wrong C? with you? I thought you were a security expert. Apparently, you're numb. Uh, so uh, so I also – we also talked about the, the Cypher Suite list. I think it's a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash GRC Ciphers, which takes you to a text file. And remember, Leo, that I left out a comma on one line yeah. <laughs> uh, that broke it. So I waited until this weekend when I fic- I updated the list to the latest and greatest. It's got the comma back in and it's updated. So what I did was I used a judicious selection of, and so that's an ordered list from from the one the server wants most to the one it wants least, carefully chosen so that it will give us uh, perfect forward secrecy. Those are all those uh, the um, the the Diffie the ephemeral Diffie Hellman uh, key uh, agreement uh, at the top. Also, the longest uh, the longest encryption key lengths two fifty six as opposed to one twenty eight when we can get it and so forth. So, and it's something like nine. You only have ten twenty three characters for the total length of that. When you take the line breaks out and this thing is it's absolutely as long as it can be fitting in the optimal selection of cipher suites for a Windows machine. So so what I've done is um, I turned off SSL three because even XP SP one SP two is able to use TLS one point zero and I still have an SHA-1 cert, but as I mentioned last week, mine expires on midnight. In fact, I will probably be with you, Leo, when that cert expires. I, however, will have already uh, then moved to an SHA-256 cert. I already have that, but I'm not running it because I want to stay for a year with a certificate that SP2 users, Windows XP SP2 users will still be able to use all the services of GRC. They will stop being able to use services of other websites that have been forced to switch to SHA-256. But my site won't be one that makes them switch. They'll be forced to switch by to other sites, and that's my logic. Then, by the end of 2015, the, anyone at that point who somehow is still, you know, not able. I mean, all, all you have to do is use Chrome or Firefox. They both run fine, even on old Windows. You just can't use IE, which, which is the now the remaining browser that uses the built-in security suite for Windows. So all, all anyone has to do is move to Firefox or Chrome, and then you're fine. So anyway, I'm back to an A grade. I will have an A plus one year from now when I finally decide that I'm I'm going to drop SHA one and switch over to SHA two fifty six. Also, uh, you've talked about, and this is in miscellany. Our still waiting. We're waiting for the Kickstarter Tem Perfect mug, <laughs> and 
on January 1st, um, I received an update email from them saying the Temperfect Kickstarter campaign was funded one year ago today on January 1st, 2014. So he he wrote, I considered doing a, quote, year in review, unquote, update for you because it's been a year now we've been waiting, but decided that would just be long and tedious. In short, 2014 was the year we learned how hard it can be to work with a factory eight, and he says, or 12 time zones away with a very different language, different ways of working and a different concept of what a quality product is. And so he says, that leaves me with just the last month to review for you. Because as I said, I've been getting constant updates. At least they're not gone and they haven't given up. And he said, we made a lot of progress in December and things are starting to come together. And then I'll just finish by saying that one note they made was they said, but after all the back and forth, with the mug factory in the last months, we found ourselves with enough sample parts to assemble a few mugs ourselves. So we did. Logan and I put together a mug and tested it to see how its performance would compare to our computer model predictions and prototype measurements. The performance is better than predicted. And the temperature hold time was over an hour, even without vacuum insulation. So just to review for our listeners, remember, and, and uh, you know, the, the cool thing about the physics of this, their concept was that, that hot coffee, when it first comes out of the pot, is too hot to drink. You need to wait for it to cool down to drinkable temperature. So their concept was to create a mug that had a, a great deal of what I'll call thermal inertia. That is, it's not just a vacuum container, but it's like a vacuum container where on the inside, that is on the coffee side, it's like lined in like, you know, a long, like a big copper ring. It's not actually copper, but they have something that has a material, a thick layer of a material that is initially cool. And so the idea is that when you pour this too hot to drink coffee in, the heat in the too hot to drink coffee is taken up by the liner and then preserved by the vacuum seal. So what happens is the coffee temperature immediately drops to drinkable, but now it stays at that drinkable temperature far longer than it normally would. That's the temp perfect mug. All we have is promises, <laughs> but you and I have both were, were, were funders and they haven't given up yet. So maybe one of these days we'll get it. Anybody who's ever uh, bought anything on Kickstarter realizes that uh, Kickstarter is great, but it gives people who have no experience manufacturing. That's exactly it. A, a uh, pulpit to talk about it. And yes, they've, you know, they're, they're learning on our dime. 
Yes. What we keep seeing is people who don't understand that making something is not as simple as it seems from the outside. So lots of people are getting an education. And every so often we get something cool. You got your your uh, your Pono player. That was Kickstarter, right? That's true. Yeah. 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 I've gotten almost I've, everything I've I've uh, tried to buy. Yeah, I think overall the idea is is very cool. Yeah. So I'm, I wanted to ask you because um, I've not been keeping up. Has anything interesting happened at CES? <laughs> yeah, I mean it depends what you mean by interesting. Well, cool, cool stuff that we have to have. Yeah, we have Father Robert Balasser down there. We have uh, Dick D. Bartolo. And uh, Scott Wilkinson. Um, so I'm interested. How, how is, is is coverage happening? Is Twit doing? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like- We're covering it on TNT every day. We cut. We uh, have. Uh, 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 I, have we put it up on specials yet? Showstoppers and Pepcom, the uh, little little events that that they do. And then, um, yeah, and then um, Home Theater Geeks will have a special from there. And I'm kind of interested in the quantum dot backlighting that some of the manufacturers right. have announced. That technology interests me we'll see if it makes a difference in tv scott thinks it will um you know yeah there have been some announcements <laughs> there's a lot okay. of announcements i don't know okay. you know nothing really stunning stands out not yet but that you know it's hard to sift it's like all temp perfect mugs it's hard to sift the stuff that's actually going to appear in the marketplace from the stuff uh, that seems like a good idea right Right, and, and that's a good point. We often see the nature of CES is that many times the manufacturers are showing prototypes to gauge reaction and yeah. to see if it, you know, and also just to say, look what we were able to do. You know, yes, we're able to, you know, do a sixteen k sixteen k display. Uh, right. Anyone, we don't, we don't have it. any wires. Right. Well, you don't, and we can't get the image to it fast enough, but. Uh, Still, uh, look at that screen. Well, you heard, the, who was it? Sony that has a really, like, a, a TV, a big screen TV thinner than an iPhone. Ooh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind if my TV is an inch thick. I really, it no. doesn't really affect no. me. So, no, true. So, uh, okay. So I did get a nice note, from, uh, a holiday note, uh, from a Tim Green in Germany. Uh, the subject was Spinrite Fixes ps3s too and he said just for a change spinrite also fixes playstations we have a relatively old ps3 that we use mainly as a dvd and blu-ray player and media center it started acting up recently hanging on boot up and exhibiting other strange stutters and pauses at unexpected times so i took out the hard drive connected it to a pc and let spinrite at it on level two. Just over an hour later, I put the drive back in the PS3 and booted up for a complete transformation. Not only has it stopped hanging on startup, but it now also feels generally snappier and smoother. Thanks once again for the only really useful hard disk maintenance and recovery utility I have ever encountered. And also for all your inside information and wisdom in the show every week, which I've listened to as unfailingly as you have produced it ever since episode one. All the best to you, Leo, and all of both of your loved ones for a happy and joyful Christmas break. Thanks again, Tim Green. All so, of Tim, both of our loved ones. Thanks very much. <laughs> all mean, of our loved ones. I understand ones. what he's we're talking all, about. We're all covered. All of both of them. Yeah. All of many. Steve, uh, we'll take a break. we got questions for you. 
but I wanted to mention a little bit about uh, one of our fine sponsors, the folks at Go to Assist. We've talked about them before. It's a secure cloud-based solution. If you're an IT or support professional and you want to provide live or unattended remote support for your employees or your customers working from any computer or mobile device, you've got to know about this. I mean, it is challenging. I understand, believe me, how hard it is to be in support. You've got urgent tech support requests. You've got to work quickly to maintain productivity. And, of course, security nowadays, boy, that's always a a priority. You can't compromise it with the tools you use. That's why we talk about Citrix Go to Assist, not only the number one market leader in uh, globally, worldwide, in remote support. It's 100% secure. So Look at this. Wells Fargo, British Telecom, Verizon, so many small businesses, and individuals, too. I use Go to Assist. We love Go to Assist. It's easy to use. You'll solve problems faster than ever. Not only can you do live support, but you can do it unattended from any computer to any computer or mobile device. Screen share with employees to diagnose and fix their problems faster and more effectively. Use the apps to deliver support anytime, anywhere. You can literally support somebody from your iPhone, your iPad, your Android phone. Go to Assist. It's easy to use. It sets up in less than a minute. Whether you're supporting one coworker or your mom. Mom. Hi, Mom. Ten employees or even a thousand. I love Go to Assist. My mom loves it, too, because she sees the mouse move and she says, it makes me happy to see you fixing, <laughs> fixing my computer. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial. Absolutely free. You don't have to use a credit card. There's no contract. It's just, you know, it's yours free for 30 days. You know, I love that when a company does that. That says, we're confident. We know you're going to love this so much that uh, we don't have to worry. At the end of 30 days, we have a feeling we've got a new customer. I bet that's true. Citrix, go to Assist. Visit gotoassist.com. Click that big orange 30-day free trial button and uh, play with it today. You will love it. People who listen to this show are their kind of their natural customers. Because even if you're not a, you know, doing this for a living you are we know you are supporting people all the time (sighs) and i bet you that's part of the reason people listen right they want to know this stuff dr mom sent me an email with a certificate from her hospital i should show you this it's kind of funny she was visiting grc.com and the hospital replaced your certificate with you know one of those man in the middle things but this is a lot of businesses do this is not kind of what gogo did really but you see, she's on Shields Up. It says grc.com, but it also says North Shore LIJ Health System, yep. Westbury, New York. That's common. Yep. A lot of businesses do that. Well, yes. And once, um, what, what would normally happen is you would embed the proxy server's certificate in your browser, and then you would no longer get those messages. That, that, the, the message the only warning. happens. Right. Right. It, the idea being that it says, hey, the cert is signed by somebody we don't know. Right. Says you're on GRC.com, but uh, they didn't sign it. This is right. the, what GoGo's doing is different because they say Google signed it. Right? Yes, correct. That's, that's a bridge too far or something. Yes. Yeah. Is that you? You have an alarm going off? Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Somebody's doing a dance out on the front, out in front of the house. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's. They've, they've they've gone away. Question time number one from James Allen. He's looking for clarification on the squirrel cross-site tracking and adoption. Steve, 
Thanks for your efforts on the Security Now podcast with Leo. I'm new to security, and it has become a weekly staple of my life. I love Squirrel. Squirrel, I love you. I just have one nagging question in the back of my head, and I wondered if you'd considered this and what your opinion is. One of the features, which is great for users, is the per-site identification tokens, public keys, which are unique for each site a user visits. This means that unless the user volunteers to the website additional identifying information, an email address, let's say, one site, as an example, Audi.com, cannot match up the user identity from another site, say Porsche.com. This is great from a user's perspective as it gives us more control over what websites know about us. But it seems to me it's not good for corporate groups like Volkswagen, who owns both Audi and Porsche because they can no longer track users across their multiple services or sneakily sell on your information to other companies. Again, great for us, not so good for the people making money off of us. This seems to me a potential reason for large and or unscrupulous corporations not to implement Squirrel. Is this going to be a problem to get some adoption? Okay, so, of course, the podcast before last uh, was the Christmas holiday, and we played... Uh, the presentation that I gave uh, during the DigiCert um, Security Summit in Las Vegas. Um, and as a consequence, I got a lot of this, and I wanted to address the concern. I think I, I overstated without exaggerating anything, but I, I, I've confused people. So the, the cool thing about Squirrel is well one of the many is that it does synthesize a per user identity but that's all it does that is no different than a user synthesizing a per site password um so so the tracking thing it isn't something that squirrel prevents in any way um, and so that's what's got people confused because squirrel generates a per site identity. People think that they assume that I'm, that that's somehow prevents them from being tracked, but that that's, you know, the tracking happens, for example, at the cookie level or the super cookie level, which is different from your identity. So a bad identity system would be one that explicitly where, like, for example, you always had to have the same username and password for every site. Well, then they could obviously track you by your username and password. Um, but people know better than that. So they often, if they want anonymity, they'll create different usernames and passwords per site. Squirrel just does it automatically. So I want to, I, many people got confused by that. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to explain that it's identity that it creates uniquely but, for example, if you receive a cookie from uh, Volkswagen and then you go to the Audi site and they have a, a, an image or a tracking beacon over to the Volkswagen.com site, you, you know, that cookie will follow you. So all of the tracking stuff isn't changed one way or the other. It's just the identity, which is unique per site. And so, you, you know, it gives you sort of a, a head start. I guess, on the tracking problem. But by no means does it, you know, do I, did I want to oversell that or confuse people? 
Well, and you make an, ex- an excellent point, which I hadn't really thought about. But if I use my email as my login, which many sites encourage you to, yes, I'm not going to make yes. up a new email address for every site. I use the same email, nope. email all the time, so that means right. they know who same I am. you. Yes, exactly. If you log in, right? Yeah, but obviously, there's no point for Squirrel if you don't. Uh, right? I mean, it's right. that's the whole point is authentication. Yeah. Right, and at least Squirrel doesn't give away your identity. Right. It, it, for every squir- every site you visit, you get get a, a unique random gibberish blob, right. and they go, "Oh, okay. Well, you can tell us anything that's more him about again. you." And then that's it's him up again. To you. <laughs> exactly. Oh, he's back. <laughs> it's blob again. They don't know my blob. email address, and that's to me right there. Nope. Your huge improvement. Yep. I forgot that just by giving him the same. E- I always use the same email address, and who's, yeah, even if you didn't. You know, maybe, but you're not going to make up a new address for every site. That'd be It would be really burdensome. Yeah. Yep. Pat Cho, Sacramento, wonders whether it's safe to log in to Poodle TLS vulnerable sites. Steve, Fidelity is still vulnerable. Ah, This is interesting to me. I use Fidelity. To the Poodle attack, according to SSL Labs. How much risk is there for someone to log into their servers while they're vulnerable? It doesn't seem like getting it fixed is a very high priority for Fidelity, even though they assure me secure, they take security very securely, Pat, or seriously, or something. Yeah, so, okay. Um, what a, a server is vulnerable to Poodle if it still supports SSL version 3.0. SSL TLS 1.0 and above isn't a problem it's and so the 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 we were poodle came back in the news our listeners will remember because it it is possible to downgrade the browser's intent to support tls back to ssl and if the server also supports it then they negotiate an ssl 3.0 connection which then can be theoretically attacked so what what everyone now should do is simply disable SSL 3.0. It is that simple. So so to answer Pat's question, it's always been the case that the poodle attack is more theoretical than real. I mean, on a spectrum of things, we're we're prevent we're preempting something that is that could be done but remember to be done you have to get malicious script from a site on your browser and then it has to generate thousands of queries which a man in the middle alters because the browser is unable to do it to in order to probe error messages coming back from the server about the handshake being broken. And after thousands of queries, you are able to determine one byte from the headers that might be from a cookie that might contain information you care about that might create a problem. So, you know, the answer is, is this really a problem? Uh, It's hard to imagine that it is. But... The fact that Fidelity Investments, who say they care about security, 
don't care enough to turn off SSL version 3 when that's all it takes. That's the bigger cause for concern than that you could actually get bitten by Poodle. Well, they may have Poodle. a lot of little old ladies using it with Windows 95 or something, right? But even, um, well, good question. I don't know they how far be, back they know. 3.0 goes. But, they know but what SS their customers are using, and they probably yeah. say, you know what, if we turn it off, it's a, it's a minimal threat, and if we turn it off, we're going to have a big compatibility issue. I would it guess. Is, and it, it, it is true. It's why I didn't bother with it until, yeah. you know, until I finally rebooted my server. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, it, I mean, no one's ever seen an exploit in the wild. No one's ever exploiting it. It's, it's, and and the, the, as I've always said, the bar is very high for actually getting bitten by a poodle. <laughs> but once you get bitten by a poodle, you'll never uh, want to get bitten by you, a poodle again. Yeah, yeah that's mm, true. Mm, mm. Steve Nagy especially, writing. Especially if it's not one of those little mini poodles. If it's a <laughs> oh, full-size maxi poodle, owie, that'll bite owie. you. Steve Nagy, an average Joe in Tampa, Florida, self-described, uses <laughs> about Sony security. Hey, Steve and Leo, love the show. Been listening now for about a year. Got to tell you, the more I hear, the more I wonder if anyone is ever really secure. My question is, what if Sony, or anyone else for that matter, had used some sort of dongle or YubiKey for critical security logins? Would this have at least hindered system-wide exploitation? Thanks again for a great show, Steve. You know who famously does this is Bloomberg. They put terminals, Bloomberg terminals, in all sorts of places, and the terminals are very expensive. You know, investment folks, stockbrokers yeah. and stuff buy it. And uh, they have a key, a card key with a temporary code. It's a cycle, you know, one of those VeriSign style cycling card keys uh, that is a swipe and a code that is required to use it. And nobody, to my knowledge, has ever broken into Bloomberg's terminals. Those are, that's a valuable asset. So... I, I like this question because, you know, the whole question, the, the whole issue of remediation and not not only recovery, but like lessons learnable, how, you know, to the degree that this is, you know, as I as I, the topic of the podcast a few weeks ago was expensive lessons. So we'd like to learn something from this rather than just, oh, my God. Um, and I've, of course, famously said, I don't think I could secure Sony Entertainment it, not to and not while their network is as functional as they need it to be. But but people keep asking, what, you know, what, what could you do then? I mean, what could be done? And the, the, the thing I think, I think that the takeaway lesson from, from the experience is that there are varying levels of integrity. That is, you know... Uh, many security models had this notion of, we'll call it rings, because, for example, even the Intel chip has multiple rings. We talk about ring zero and ring three. There's actually ring one and ring two, but no one ever bothers with them because it turns out having the kernel and having not the kernel is really all we needed. But the architecture's got four levels of with gradiated permission. But that's sort of the idea where you'd have... You know, all of your administrative assistants and your outside people and probably your VPNs and all that stuff would sort of have access at the outer ring. And and things like financial plans and 
the you know the the stuff that was really painful for Sony to lose presumably you have a a a smaller cadre of you know C level and related executives upon whom you actually could impose stricter requirements for authentication where yes in return for their access to the crown jewels they're going to jump through some hoops and they can be expected to to have a greater burden of 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 inconvenience in return for needing to secure the more important data we don't have any evidence that there was any sort of hierarchical security but but that's the architecture that that can be imposed that is still practical where people where you know unfortunately email is still going to probably be embarrassing and it's probably going to be out largely in the public but you could also have protected email servers for the inner sanctum executives that that are kept in a in a more highly contained environment so i think that the security model that needs to be imposed is not one that is flat the the evidence is Sony was operating in a flat model. And, you know, you really can't do that. I, I think moving forward, if Sony's going to restructure themselves, they need to do it in a, in a hierarchical model where people who have more privileges have, have a, a greater burden of honoring the security of that privilege. Um, and, you know, that's still, you know, that, that, that's a mode that, that could be implemented that would not be unduly burdensome to the organization overall. And I, that's pretty much what you have to do Yeah, to secure something of that size. Well, and maybe not use email. I think a lot of organizations have moved to solutions other than email for internal communication. Uh, you know, secure messaging can be ah, completely right. secure, right? And, so there uh, just isn't there just isn't that that persistent record of stuff that you really don't need to keep a record right. of, and you may not want to for a variety. Yeah, exactly. but then there may also be, and I don't know what the mandate is on this, but I do know that uh, you can't destroy email in a business. Uh, you need to keep it for a number of years, uh, so there's a paper trail for legal reasons. So um, there may be legal uh, ramifications that also make this difficult to do. I don't know. Is it the case that you cannot destroy it, or if you have it, you cannot destroy it? Well, presumably you have it. <laughs> I don't keep mine. Um, what was the rule? Maybe somebody in the chat room knows. But I, I, I feel like you're supposed to – There's a. It, it's Sarbanes-Oxley, so it's not, all, not everybody. You're, you're not a publicly okay. held company. But uh, Sarbanes-Oxley okay. uh, requires a certain amount of email need to be uh, uh, preserved – for a certain length of time. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's yeah. Sarbanes Oxley was the rules, the the law that was passed uh, after um, was it WorldCom? No, um, some famous failure uh, of a company. Lots of people lost money in because the company was uh, basically hoaxing, you know, fooling, messing around with its books. And, and so then Enron, the idea would Enron, be, thank you. Ah, okay, that Enron. makes sense. After so, the Enron scandal. So the idea w would then be that that a company that it has to be publicly is, is publicly held, then is able to affirmatively respond to a subpoena to produce right. 
the email. Yeah. So if they're sued, they're going to have to say, okay, here's our stuff. You have to preserve it. You can't throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so, I don't know if Sony Pictures Entertainment was publicly held. I'm pretty sure it is. So I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask me. I'm no attorney. Rafael Barraldo in Brasilia wonders about GRC's Windows servers. Hey, Steve, Rafael says, why not Linux? Long-time listener here is a Linux guy. And knowing, you know, you like the BSD family, I've always wondered, why use Microsoft's IIS to run the GRC website? Why not run it on one of Unix's spiritual successors? I decided to send this question after episode 486 when you mentioned that Windows has a very small string size for supported TLS ciphers. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks. You know, people to ask. And um, more than anything, uh, just sort of an accident of history. Um, I'm a Windows developer. I've, you know, I've been writing Windows client side stuff. Uh, well, for 25 years, that's, you know, uh, Spinrite and even before that, Flickr Free was my previous software, uh, have always been on Windows. Um, and then I had my chromosome screensaver that I wrote. Anyway, so, you know, when Microsoft uh, was offering a server and used the sort of the same OS that I was already a programmer of, I just sort of went with it. Um, I think if I had it all to do again, it would absolutely make sense to have used a fully open solution. The good news is that IIS allows deep hooking. That is, the web server allows me to insert my own code in front of it and behind it. So there's like a little core now of IIS that runs, and then the so-called GRC net engine is what I call it. It just sort of like stomps on top of it. And so all the extra stuff that GRC does is my own code running where IIS just sort of does the low-level grunt work of serving simple queries. But, you know, things like the DNS spoofability test, the perfect, uh, the perfect passwords, you know, all of the server-side stuff, I, I am writing in Windows. So it, even now it's convenient for me because, as I said, I'm a developer that knows the Windows API pretty much inside and out. So it's been practical, but I, I do wish that I was on an open source platform. And again, I'm, I'm not going to go rewrite everything now for it. Um, but if I had to do it again, yeah, I probably would have chosen FreeBSD. That's my, that's my platform of choice when I'm not on Windows. And I do have a FreeBSD server running. Oh. My, you know, my DNS server at GRC is on FreeBSD. The, I'm running an, the, an origi- an, a true NNTP server um, on FreeBSD Unix. So I've got one. But I just don't do that much with it. InfoSec Institute says IRS requires seven years, payment card one year, California Franchise Tax Board four years. This is email retention. DISA Security Technical Implementation Guides, STIG one year, many state revenue departments three years, HIPAA six years. So you may have regulations that require that you preserve email. Right. Um. Don't ask. Don't listen to this. These guidelines. Ask an attorney. Damien in Nashville has been told TrueCrypt has a backdoor. Steve, thanks for all you do. I'm running today about something a security consultant told me today. When I mentioned I use TrueCrypt volumes to secure some more sensitive items 
on my computer, his response is, oh, we're going to have to get you off TrueCrypt. When probed about why, he said, whoa, it was deemed insecure long ago and has been found to have a major backdoor. I can't tell you the the details. I'm under NDA, but if you do enough Googling, there have been papers presented on how to break TrueCrypt. What? Uh. I will admit I haven't dug into this for more than the past few hours. I also haven't been keeping up with the show the last couple of months, so I apologize if you've already covered this. But is TrueCrypt truly broken? No, but I think your security consultant might be. Is there any huh. hard evidence that something isn't right with it? I don't see any change in your TrueCrypt archive pages. So I'm thinking your stance is still the same as it was this summer. Can you reassure me or put me in my place? Thanks for everything you do. Your work is truly appreciated by the community. So, Damien, you're not being put in your place. You're being reassured. However, you can, as Leo suggested, put your security consultant in his place. <laughs> I'm a no. security consultant. I'm sorry, Steve. I know this stuff. We, we've seen these clowns who yeah. sort of adopt oh, a know-it-all yeah. attitude. Oh, yeah. no. and, you, you must have and, seen that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the first thing to worry yourself is anyone who is who purports to be a know-it-all because none of us know it all. Um, you know, one of my favorite things is to say, I don't know. I can go find out, but I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's no papers that we are aware of or the industry is aware of or anyone is aware of uh, that this guy uh, is suggesting talks about a true crypt backdoor. We don't know that there is one. Well, the only thing that is bad about true crypt, arguably, is, is that it is now unsupported. So it is unsupported, as far as we know, flawless software. If you prefer to use supported stuff, well, there are there are uh, forks of TrueCrypt source, which people are developing, and there are entirely non-TrueCrypt things like BitLocker um, and, you know, the Mac's got whole drive encryption now and so forth. But um, if I were to choose something, I would use, and if it were to work, the other problem is that TrueCrypt will start getting long in the tooth when the platform's we start moving to are no longer true crypt compatible. Um, so that will become a problem over time. But today, uh, I, I like true crypt better than solutions from the manufacturers because, frankly, I don't trust the manufacturers. And I do trust the, the spirit and the intent of the guys who wrote true crypt. Well, and there's a good reason not to trust the manufacturers. They do business in the United States and they may have been compelled. Yep. By the U.S. government to provide a yep. backdoor. And we would not know about it, and they would not be able to say no. Nope. Uh, whereas TrueCrypt, which was run by, as far as we could tell, a couple of guys from where were they from? Liechtenstein or somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they probably were not. And the quote, the code is published, even though it's not open yeah, source. Yeah, exactly. The code is all there for anyone to criticize. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the initial pass of the audit found nothing, although that wasn't a deep audit of the, the crypto, right. and that apparently is still underway. I look forward to that. Yeah. That's actually probably what this security expert was thinking of. He'd heard dimly in the back of his mind, TrueCrypt hasn't been audited or is in the process of being audited, and he just kind of translated that into his unreliable. You're, you're giving him too much credit. I am, maybe. No, I know that you've you read through security forums <laughs> where everybody knows everything. Oh, no, and it's like, oh, goodness. I have a friend who used to work with a friend who had a guy who uh, his uncle, I think, was at the uh, NSA. That's right. And he yeah. told you that Windows was totally backdoored. <laughs> That's right. We can see everything you do all the time. That's right. Just give up now. <laughs>
<laughs> but I'm a security consultant, so pay my bills. Mark Goldstein in North Virginia. Now we know what that means. Notes that HTTPS can be faster than HTTP would. Test the thesis at this website. HTTP vs. HTTPS.com. It compares the load time of an insecure HTTP and encrypted HTTPS versions of a web page. Each test loads 360 unique non-cached images for a 2.04 megabyte total. And I guess, he doesn't say what the result is, that the HTTPS is faster. How could that be, Steve? Isn't there work, work being done? There is. Uh, and this is a neat site, so I wanted to put it on everybody's radar. You should try it, Leo. I Everybody will. should try it. HTTP vs. HTTPS.com. And thank you, Mark, for pointing us to it. I wasn't aware of it. Um, the secret. Oh, here it, it comes. It looks cool. Yeah, it's, they did a nice job. Done. Please try HTTPS. So that was 5.837 seconds. Now, this could be completely fake. Nope, but... it's not. So now change Whoa! it. Whoa! 80% faster with HTTPS. What? Because of Speedy, Leo. Uh... So we talked about Speedy in the past. This is a very nice, legitimate comparison between not negotiating an, a, an SSL HTTPS connection and negotiating it, but using the Speedy protocol. What Google did, just to refresh our, our listeners, is they carefully looked at just all the extra cruft that is in the original HTTP spec. And remember that HTTPS is only a, is a security tunnel through which HTTP runs. Speedy is a, a essentially just a... a um, an optimized and accelerated and a, and a carefully redesigned HTTP, which is the protocol for HTTP slash 2.0. Right now, we're at 1.1. The HTTP 2.0 spec incorporates these improvements. So what's interesting is that here we see that the, the boost that we get from taking the, the very creaky original HTTP protocol and updating it well, by really optimizing it, that boost is substantially greater than the, the cost of negotiating even that many connections. Now, the test is a little bit, it, it tends to exaggerate the difference specifically because the images are tiny, which means the handshake overhead is maximized. So the, you know, for like a much larger a much larger objects that you are downloading, the query overhead, which is what speedy um, speeds, the query overhead would be a much lo lower percentage of the overall than um, than this page shows. But this is a, a I think a, a very useful test. And so again, uh, I I I think everyone ought to give it a shot. It's fun. And IE, by the way, doesn't work at all because it doesn't support Speedy. Oh. So you have to have Firefox or Chrome. Or oh. Are you using Safari? That was uh, Chrome. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. I don't think Safari is a Speedy client. Either. Oh, that's interesting. All right. 
And they do suggest you run it in an incognito window over and over again. You do get different results each time. So yeah, it's kind of you're going to. Well, because I mean, it is how fast can it get all these little images? So it's a, right. so little little glips and blitches and glurps and things in the internet are going glitches and, and mitches. Yep, those things. Uh, I am logging in right now to my IT Pro TV account. Because I want to talk to you about the best way to polish up your skills. If you're an IT person or you'd like to become an IT person, IT Pro TV is awesome. Let me go to the site and you can take a look. It's an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. They say, learn IT, with learn without even knowing it. <laughs> IT Pro TV was originally designed by Tim and Don uh, to kind of duplicate what we're doing here at Twit, only focusing on education in IT. So, I mean, that's quite a discipline. That means they're going bit by bit through each of the different exams. They're doing, oh, look, well, we rarely see this. We're going into, uh, that's Don's workshop here, behind the scenes of the IT Pro. So this is live. They do live shows, about 30 hours live every week. And it's not like us where we're just kind of talking. I mean, they're they're aimed at teaching you and getting you ready for the exams so you can get the cert. Which certs? Look at the course library. You'll be, I think, impressed by the variety of certs. Comp T is A plus, Net plus, Security plus, Linux plus, and Cloud plus. The Microsoft MCSA and MTA certs. Cisco, CCNA. The new ISC squared security certs. They've got a really good security instructor for that. This is new. ITIL foundation exam. They're working on, and it'll be out sometime in the next few months, their certified ethical hacker cert. Oh, I want that. Microsoft Office. Sure, they got that. PMI project management. You got, you bet. VMware. Zen server. Hyper-V. They've even got a course on Wireshark. Google for work, Amazon and PowerShell for administrators. This is it, man. You are going to learn. Now, you can watch it uh, online, but you can also watch on a mobile device. In fact, if you have a year subscription, you can actually download these files and put them on your uh, tablet or your, your phone and watch on the airplane when you're not connected. They also have a Roku app, which makes it really great. You just have it on all the time, all day, all night. It'll just sink, sink in. And the price really is great, about the cost of a study guide, and certainly a lot cheaper than going to an IT boot camp. Uh, it is normally $57 a month, $570 for the uh, entire year, but we've got a special offer. Tim and Don really love security now. They love the, uh, the folks uh, who listen and watch our shows, and they decided they want to do something kind of special. So they're giving us 30% off, not just for the first month or year, but for the life of your subscription, look at the virtual labs. This is so cool. We're going to give you 30% off when you use the offer code SN30. Less than $40 a month, 400 bucks for the entire year. And, and this is because they just crossed their one-year anniversary. Once you reach your 13th month, they'll reduce your subscription rates even farther, bringing your cost down to $24.95 a month or $249 for the entire year. That is a great deal. You get the measure up practice exams with your subscription. That's worth 79 bucks. That's nice. If you're preparing for the exams, you could take the tests, the practice tests, right up front. And uh, th as I was mentioning, they have a virtual lab. So even if you don't, if you're studying Windows Server and you don't have a Windows Server, one will be provided for you. 
You can actually set up a server and three clients on any HTML5 browser. You don't even need to have Windows. IT Pro TV. This is a great company doing a great product. And if you're in IT or you want to get a better job or you want to just, you know, stay up on what's going on, easy, affordable IT training on your big screen TV, your tablet, your phone, your computer. These guys are great. I really, really like them. And, and we, it's been a great relationship for us. And a lot of people have written to me saying, thank you for turning me on to IT Pro TV. I've learned so much. I got a new job or I passed the exam with flying colors. ITPro.tv slash security now. Go there right now and sign up for that 30% off. There's even a seven-day free trial. You'll get 30% off and a seven-day free trial at SN. Three zero, And because they're good geeks, they make it easy to cancel. If it doesn't work out for you, don't worry. You're not going to get the fourth degree. ITPro.tv slash security now. We continue on. More questions for Steve Arino. Ooh, hey, oh, Steve Arino. Uh, let's see here. This is question number seven, right? Seven. Yep. All right. It comes from Kevin Garman. In Illinois, and his chosen domain. Seems they had a slight problem. Hi, guys. Thanks for a great podcast and hard drive tool. He's talking about Spinray. A heads up to fellow listeners and a question. I was recently excited to add SSL support to my own personal own cloud server. Own cloud software that lets you do it kind of your own cloud. So I was going through Start SSL's process to get a free cert when they sent me an email saying I'm not eligible for a free cert. Because banks and financial institutions are not allowed to use their free service. How does this apply to me? They said it's because my domain has the word money in it. Uh, wow. Some chat. <laughs> wow. Hey, you said money. You must be a bank. To their credit, they were prompt at replying with an explanation. But I guess they didn't change it. I guess I'm back to nope. self-signed certs. Unless I could find another source of free SSL certs, I guess I'll have to wait for Let's Encrypt. Thanks again. Kevin, that's too bad. Wasn't that weird? I just, yeah. I, that just sort of popped on, you know, Kevin explained it and his, like, his domain is like mymoney.net or something yeah. or, you know, something.money.net. And they just see that in the domain name and that's what they key on. It's like, whoa, what? I mean, like Bank of America doesn't have the word money in it. I guess it I has bet the word they look bank. At bank. I bet they would look for other words too. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's funny they so can't anyway, reverse that. Yeah, and so for anyone who's like, like going to get a domain for themselves, <laughs> if you Don't want free certs from Start SSL, avoid anything that sounds like a financial institution, huh. and uh, maybe you can get one. Wow, that's interesting. That? Yeah, and they that didn't, was. and they didn't overturn it. I think they really don't. Yeah, they wanna, just said no. They, they don't want to be held liable for people right. losing money because of a cert, right? So they're just staying away from it. Jeff in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Share some great app locker experience. I'm the IT director for a major university athletic program. A Security Now listener since 2012. Yay, Jeff. I was excited to hear you discussing app locker for malware protection in the podcast. We have been using it for years with great success and are trying to spread the word about how effective it can be in an enterprise environment. Pre-app locker, we were cleaning up three to five malware infections per week. Per week. He didn't say how many. Oh, yeah, he does say later how many seats. 400 plus seats. That's a lot of malware infections for 400 people. 
despite running a popular up-to-date enterprise AV program and having users operate with limited accounts. Wow, he has determined users. <laughs> Whitelisting executables via app lockers resulted in us not having a single malware infection across 400-plus Windows machines in more than four years. The prospect of whitelisting every executable a user could legitimately need to access sounds daunting, but actually it's pretty simple, at least in a corporate environment. Rules for digitally signed executables are the easiest because you can trust all executables by a given publisher without a single rule. One will allow everything that Google, Adobe, Citrix, or Cisco offers. Okay, maybe not Adobe. Just create a publisher rule allowing anything signed by those guys and you're done. Path rules are easy too, but use them sparingly and only on locations when users don't have right NTFS permissions. For example, allow C backs colon backslash windows and C colon backslash program files, etc., but not C colon backslash users slash users name for executables. I have a set of 14 rules which allow 99 I want to get these rules. Nine, I know. 99% plus of the legitimate applications that our users need to run. I rarely have to revisit these rules or make exceptions. But when I do, it takes significantly less time than when I used to spend, than what I used to spend cleaning up malware. The users rarely even know that these rules exist, and it has blocked the execution of hundreds, thousands of executable malware droppers from infiltrating our Windows machines over the years. This is great, and he does provide a link. Yep. Here's my write-up on our specific implementation. It's at community.spiceworks.com. Uh, you could probably Google free almost perfect malware protection with GPO app locker or something of the sort. All and that the link is in the show notes, and the show notes are linked to the podcast now, so people can find them under Good. question number eight. Good. All that said, app locker is really not suitable in its current form for users in a home or small business that doesn't have Active Directory implemented and requires an enterprise license for the Windows machines in question. The only way I'm aware of manipulating rules is via group policy objects. If Microsoft were to implement some sort of more user-friendly GUI for home users and small business users, it could be a useful tool. But I'm not aware of any such option at the moment. What a great so, email. And I'm going to send this link right yep. now to Russell. Yep. So I love this. We were talking recently, and this is what prompted Jeff, of course. We we're talking about the notion uh, in the context of Sony and how you lock down a, a big enterprise uh, of the idea that maybe the only solution is going to be to doing the same thing we've ended up doing with firewalls, where we flipped the sense of a firewall from blocking the bad stuff to permitting the good stuff and doing the same thing with applications, where we we, we, we default disallow the OS to run something unless the app has been specifically whitelisted and it's built into Windows as AppLocker. So I, I really appreciated Jeff sharing his experience. Um, and I did want to also plant a bug in our listeners' ears if they are aware of something or something becomes aware that Jeff's referring to that allows for non-active directory class uh, tweaking of app locker rules, then let me you know make sure that I find out about it so I can tell everyone. Because as I said, when I switched to Windows 7, um, I've, I hope to, I plan to adapt a, a whitelisting um, approach from, from the beginning 
um, and we'll see how it goes. So, Jeff, thanks so much for sharing that and, uh, and for also for providing the link to uh, your specific implementation. Yeah, I just sent that along to Russell. Neat. Uh, because you, as, as I think that's how this conversation got started. We were talking about Sony, but about this app locker uh, feature of Windows. I think it comes with Windows Ultimate. As well as enterprise, I do, I, I do too. Yeah. Yes. So I think if you get, you, you, I I remember looking it up yeah. and seeing, Not okay, pro, but it, ultimate. It is available. Yeah. yeah. And um, the idea of whitelisting is great. Of course, Russell was a little concerned. I mean, we have a perfect use for it, which is our editors' machines. There is a very limited set of applications they could or should right. be using on those machines. Right. You know, it's basically, Adobe Creative Cloud, and that's it. Um, and so locking those machines down makes is, is just prudent. He's worried though, and I've read you know people's stories saying, "Oh yeah, but you turn on App Locker, then caching doesn't work in your browser or whatever." I mean, I'm just making up stuff, but the, right. it's like address uh, randomization. It 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 breaks things in an unexpected way because Windows is really not designed to be doing it this way. Well, or it's a little bit like uh, when when we were talking about it before. It's it's like NoScript. If you've yeah, got it perfect. turned on to, to like it's alert annoying. you, you're you're right. always saying yes, right. yes, right. yes, yes, yes. You know. But uh, uh, I'm gonna, this is good if he's got it working so well. Clever, you know, giving it the domain, uh, you know, or the, or the certificate uh, blanket authorization, things like that. Yeah. Well, and, and so, you know, for example, uh, you could probably whitelist Adobe.com. Right. For, for, you know, so, so, so signed executables right. by, that are signed by Adobe and right. blank. Just, yeah. you know, and so when something new is added, it's automatically permitted if it's also from Adobe. Right. So, yeah. And and really, that just blocks the malware because the malware is not signed yep. from Adobe. Exactly. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I. This is a, this is good. Whitelisting is a great solution if you can do it. It's a great way to get rid of spam. It's a great way to get rid of a lot of things. Yeah. Pete Shaw in Warner Robins, somewhere. It sounds like I didn't even know. I he's, he 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 said Warner Robins. I thought. Well, that sounds mm. like. You know Christopher Robbins, but it's more, it may, like maybe Australia. it's his, that just feels it's his Australian. brother. I don't know what it is. Okay. He wondered it could be Arkansas. I don't know. Wondered about Security Now episodes. Steve, a big fan lately. I've noticed episodes are not available even after a couple of days. What gives? Okay, so I got a bunch of people. I it was totally my screw up. Uh, he sent this on the 18th, referring to the episode presumably on the 16th, which I never posted. Um. Uh, Elaine sent me a note when I was up with you, Leo, saying, hey, you know, just while I thought I mentioned that that never showed up. Then I thought that I hadn't updated the Security Now main page, but all the little resources were there. No, I never even did them. So I'm embarrassed to say that in the 10th year of the podcast, I'm still doing this manually, which, you know, made me sort of put me in mind of the, you know, the cobbler's kids who run around barefoot. Um, even though his customers all have shoes, I could have so easily at any time automated this process. But every week it's just like, well, okay, I'll just, I, I've got other things to do. I'm just going to post this manually. And so I, I, I get the dates screwed up. I get the numbers screwed up. You know, it's like I'm human. So anyway, there, I did go, there, we did go through like several weeks, mostly because I forgot. Then I was out of town. Everything's caught up. Everything is synchronized. Everything is correct now. So anyway, that's what's happening, Peter, is it just, it's just me. So when someone notices that something's missing, just send me a tweet. I'll probably see it, and I'll fix it. So apologies, but that's, that's what happened. A little self-serving, but you could also come to twit.tv slash sn, where we also post all the audio. Yes, videos. go look. You, know, yeah, you don't exactly. have to get it from yes. Steve. We put it up, too. 
Right. Although sometimes from time to time, things do take a while to get out or whatever. And we get the same kind of tweets. What's great is people don't want to miss, miss an episode. And they want it when it's available. They want it right away. Yep. yep. So Warner Robbins, thanks to the chat room, is a uh, Air Force base in Georgia. Ah, nice. There you go. Robbins AFB. So he's obviously uh, works in the Air Force. Pete Shaw. Uh, I'm sorry. That was Pete Shaw. This is Bruce. Bruce McFarlane in Santa Cruz. Not Bruce. Our, our final question. Bruce. I used to work with a Bruce McFarlane. I wonder if he's related. <laughs> well, those McFarlane brothers, you know. Yeah, parents, Bruce and Bruce. Their, their parents thought they'd have some fun yeah. with their first name. And their sister Spruce. He has some perspective from the trenches. Steve and Leo, first of all, I'd like to thank you both. I'm a longtime listener to Security Now, and the things I've learned listening to this podcast have helped me advance my professional career. I'm just glad you guys aren't on commission. I was listening to your expensive lessons episode where you expressed concern that Target and maybe even Sony had been alerted to the attacks while they occurred and did not take action on these alerts. In other news reports, but not on this podcast, I've heard this characterized as gross negligence. Well, of course, they're being sued, as, as we know. For, right. uh, Target, Target is that that suit is being allowed to proceed. Right. FireEye products they use monitor all incoming network traffic and looks for objects that may contain malware or advanced persistent threats, APTs. In a company the size of Target, it would be expected to see 20,000 alerts a month correlating to truly malicious objects being downloaded to end-user desktops. Whoa. 99.9% uh. of all these downloads will end up being harmless if the endpoint has an updated virus scanner or even a well-maintained and patched operating system. As it is, in practice, impossible to follow up on each and every one of these alerts, many companies simply ignore downloads and wait until the endpoint starts exhibiting behavior that it indicates it's infected. <laughs> yeah. I suggest we wait and see if it swells up. Commonly, <laughs> the, the PC starts sending command and control messages, and this is the point where organizations tend to take actions. You know, they, they go to their botnet. Yep. In fact, this is often the recommendation of the FireEye systems engineers themselves. While it's true FireEye may have provided early warning to Target or even Sony, suggesting that Target and Sony exhibited negligence in ignoring the FireEye alert is like claiming the townspeople were guilty of negligence after the little boy warned them about the wolf. I, I, I'm going to mention that the stories I saw say that there had not merely been a download of malware, but in fact an active incursion into their systems, that they had a hacker inside the network, and they decided, eh, whatever. So I guess the question is, what did they know and when do they know it? Security professionals currently suffer from a deluge. I can only imagine, though, this this I did, this is oh. good information, of what yes. we are in the industry starting to call trivial true positives. You used to call it, you know, Internet background radiation. These are alerts yep. that, while true, provide little relevance and only serve to tap the limited resources an organization has to spread across their entire information technology infrastructure. As we know... Sony had five people in their security department, uh, and three of them were, administ were administrative, were, were managers. So there were only two yep. people in that whole techies. company. Two techies. As with all stories like this, it's always tempting to look for the easy answer, but the problem is far more nuanced than can be easily answered in a quick soundbite. 
That's why I applaud Steve for his statement that he would probably not have been able to prevent a Sony-like attack. It helps bring perspective to the problem and recognizes the difficult job performed by all the security professionals that you count as listeners. Thank you, Druce. Well, that's yeah. a very good point. I mean, it's extremely challenging. I hope we haven't in any way implied it's anything less than extremely no. difficult. And, and I, but I did love, you know, we, we talk about false positives. I love the, the, the term trivial true positives. Yeah. So they're not false positives. They, they actually are true. They, these are true problems, but they'll be knocked out before they can take root by AV or well-maintained OS. But still, 20,000 of them coming in, the problem is you, the really nasty ones can get hidden in the noise. I should also point out that if you were using or could use AppLocker, you wouldn't have that many malware uh, That's programs downloaded. Exactly right. I really I think that AppLocker or oh, a whitelisting solution where that's where we're going to have to go. I mean, think about it. It is only allow things that you know are safe to right. run. Right. Then I mean, it, it, it's a sea change. And yeah, it's not easy. It's like turning off scripting unless you explicitly know you want it on. Right. So there, there is there's going to be a bit of a problem, but especially in a corporate environment where they're not supposed to be running their own stuff anyway. Well, Just that's have the, the thing. Systems. But but then the, yes. but then your users bitch and moan because but yep. I want to run Picasso Web. <laughs> I have pictures right. to look at, right. uh, or whatever during during lunchtime. Right. I, you know, and, and you have to deal with management that says to you, no, don't worry about it. Uh, or yeah. we're going to cut your budget. Or you have two active on-the-ground security professionals for a, <laughs> for a company of 10,000 people. Something like that. I think a lot of companies would take this these, more seriously. You imagine these poor guys. It's like, oh, my God. Why do they even get up on Monday morning? But they had like, like oh. three managers. That's the worst thing. Right. <laughs> There's only two guys doing the actual work, and there's three other guys just sitting around yelling at him. Yeah, exa exactly. <laughs> saying, why did you let this happen? <laughs> oh, God. My boss's boss's boss is all upset. So Believe how did this happen? me, we have total, total sympathy uh, for anybody who's in the on the front lines in this. I, I yep. you know, all I have to do is look at my web server and see how many attacks there are on SSH every day. Hundreds, thousands. It's constant. Um, yeah. And to, to to have even a tiny glimpse of what you must be dealing with, but that's but I do think that 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 better policies can make would make your job easier, right? Rather well, than saying, "Hey, we got it, we got some malware is downloaded ten thousand times this month," but I'm pretty sure the antivirus got it. And so policies flow from the top down, right? And as and as you said, I think this is it's been an expensive lesson, but it's right. one the whole industry can learn from. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I might mention that if malware gets on your point of sale terminals, you <laughs> probably should investigate that each and every time. Yeah. Just, just a tip. It's okay just if it gets on the secretary's just computer, but the POS terminals, that's maybe a little more important. Yeah. Steve Gibson, always fun to talk security with you. I learned so much. I love this show. You, you make us all look like uh, we know what we're doing. So thank you. Security Now is every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC. If you want to watch live, we'd love it if you do, but you don't have to. Because, and I want to reiterate, not only does Steve have a copy, but I have a copy. 
Steve's got his 16 kilobit audio versions. He's got the transcripts, and that is the only place you can get those transcripts. We we have transcripts on many of our other shows, and I got an email from the guy who does those, the company that does them, saying, you know, you always mention that uh, that Steve's transcripts are written by a human. What are we, chopped liver? <laughs> So all the transcripts uh, for all the shows are written by humans. I mean only to say that there's not like these aren't those machine created transcriptions you might see on other podcast networks or websites. You've seen the horrible transcriptions on YouTube. It's not that. These are good for Steve's show and all of our shows. Uh, go to GRC.com also, not only to get the 18, 16 kilobit version and the transcripts, Go there also to get Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Fabulous, fabulous tool that everybody who has a hard drive should have. You, he's got lots of free stuff. You can go there to read about Squirrel, uh, vitamin D, and everything in between. <laughs> uh, you also can go there, uh, I might add, to ask questions. So these feedbacks that we do every other show, some are generated through Twitter. He's at SGGRC. And some are generated on the website. None are generated through email. So don't email him. He doesn't even see it. He doesn't know where it goes. There's a black hole somewhere. It all falls in there. If you have a question, go to grc.com slash feedback. That's where you go. Fill out the form, and that's a good way to get a question or a thought or a suggestion to Steve. Or tweet him, honestly. He reads all those tweets. And next week, how does the Enigma, Enigma. machine <sighs> encrypt? Are you going to do uh, – We need. We, you, you can't do – got to have some – Illustrations, I don't, right? I do not need visuals. You can talk I, us I, through it. I can talk us through Enigma. This was the amazing mechanical encryption machine that the Nazis used in World War II. And uh, it, it's a very famous story at Bletchley Park. That's where Alan Turing was. If you saw the imitation game, you know the story. And he was able to, with some help, it wasn't just him, crack the Enigma machine the Germans didn't know, and it was thanks to that that we were able, to, we the the Brits were able to turn around a very vicious uh, submarine warfare. Against Actually, what, what, one of the one of the things that the movie does a really good job of, and will you have seen it by this time next week? Yes. Are you now that you have your fancy <laughs> my uh, DVD? It's not a Blu-ray. Don't get excited. All right, all right. It's just a DVD. Anyway. One thing that they really did beautifully is understand that having cracked it, they couldn't dev- they couldn't immediately act on the information right. because that would give away the fact right. that they had cracked it. So many times they had to do, like really do the tough call of like letting people die. We know a when ship is going to be attacked. Yes. By a wolf pack in the in the North Atlantic, and we have to ignore it because if we yes we uh, admitted it, we they'd know we had Enigma. And I did remember hearing the story. I hope it wasn't apocryphal that said, for example, that sometimes they would arrange to have a fishing boat, you know, like <laughs> happen to be there, <laughs> oh, or that's a, how they a civilian. Out. A civilian plane would fly right, over, right. and the Germans would go, "Darn that plane!" <laughs> when in fact, <laughs> you know, in, in order to create, in order right. to create a coincidence that could then allow them uh, as a means of having found out. But anyway, uh, I loved the movie, so I will. Uh, you and I will discuss what you think about the movie uh, I'm sure next I'll week. Like it. I'm sure and and that'll fit perfectly in with our description of how Enigma wait. encrypts. I can't wait. And remember, this is not digital. 
This is cogs and wheels and a crank. Uh, and light bulbs, light bulbs. Light bulbs. I mean, it yeah, is cool. Yeah, like the W lights up. Yeah. Ooh, write yeah. that down, Sherlock. <laughs> Speaking of Sherlock, you, you liked Benedict in the uh, Cumberbatch in the movie? He was good, wasn't he? He really was good. I think he's up and for some awards, yeah. I wouldn't be. No, it is a good movie, although he did really play up the whole prima donna thing that I found a little over the top. But, he but you know. He didn't choose to act as if he had Asperger's, though, right? No, 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 no. Because that, in some thought, some people thought that uh, that Turing was on the spectrum, and and I was worried that he might see. This is what happens with with uh, you know, a lot of these movies. Math math whizzes are are looked at as like freaks. Prima donna, hell, I'm a prima donna. That's nothing. I think you like it. I can't wait. I have to watch it before Sunday. That's the Golden Globes. I like Good. To, I like Do. to see all the movies before the Golden And we'll Globes. we'll talk about it on Tuesday. Good. Thank you, Steve. A- along with how the machine works. <laughs> I can't wait. That's gonna be fun. Enigma Bye, Leo. next week. Bye, Thanks. Steve. Security.